Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. I have a returning guest, uh, Dominic D'Agostino, PhD. He's a, an associate professor at the Department of Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology, and he has worked with the uh, USF Morsani College of Medicine. And we're back today talking about ketogenic diet as it relates to cancer and diabetes. So, Dominic, thanks for coming back. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Richard. Yeah. Glad so, um, uh, yeah, I'm sure most of the questions you get you know, about weight loss and things like that with ketogenic diet. But, you know, some of the more serious concerns people have, obviously, is various cancers and diabetes. So um, I don't know how much of your research is focused in that area, but what are you learning about ketogenic eating plans and how it affects cancer and diabetes? Well, learning a lot. I mean, from the emerging research, research from sort of our lab, uh, from the animal perspective, and, and we collaborate with a number of groups uh, that are also studying it. And, you know, I, I'd like to say, you know, obesity and, and type 2 diabetes, that's uh, sort of like maybe the low hanging fruit for the ketogenic diet because it does work pretty well for that. And it's important to acknowledge, too, that a lot of cancers are associated with uh, with hyperglycemia, with, with high blood glucose and with obesity and type 2 diabetes. Uh, endometrial cancer, pancreatic cancer, uh, a, a number of cancers. Actually, I wrote the the foreword to a book called uh, Tripping Over the Truth, and the first author was uh, Travis Christopherson, where I sort of highlight some mm-hmm. of the uh, cancers. And those types of cancers are rapidly on the rise. So the types of cancers that are associated with uh, metabolic syndrome. And you know, so so I think it's more important to, you know, from the perspective of researchers too, to steer their research more towards cancer prevention from the perspective of metabolic health. You know, improving metabolic health uh, at a younger age and maintaining that to delay the onset uh, of cancer because we know that you know you're more likely to get it as you, you know, progress in years. But I guess so, you know, human nature being what it is, many more people are going to want to. Uh, you know, live the way they want to live. And then, oh, you know, now they have a cancer diagnosis, hopefully early stage, you know, any research yeah. on, uh, you know, okay, I'm changing my ways. I'm going to eat ketogenically. What, what will be the effect on the cancer? For sure. Yeah. I mean, two studies just came out of University of Alabama uh, this week, actually. And, and it's from uh, Barbara Gower's group. I think Kevin Fontaine was also one. These are people that I know that, sort of got interested in studying uh, ovarian cancer and endometrial cancer. And one one uh, study was published in Nutrients, I believe, and the other was the Journal of Nutrition. And uh, let me see, I have the Journal of Nutrition article on my desk. I'm just about halfway through it. But the title of it is The Ketogenic Diet Reduces Central Obesity and Serum Insulin in Women with Ovarian or endometrial cancer. So that's that's extremely important since, you know, these cancers are glycolytic in nature and high blood glucose and and elevated insulin and insulin associated signaling like IGF-1 really drives cancer growth and proliferation in in these types of cancers. So they have been, you know, linked uh, sort of metabolic uh, responsive cancers, uh, as far as their management and even the, you know, their occurrence, too. And a, a companion article, uh, which kind of also falls into this category of using the ketogenic diet as a therapy, showed favorable effects. The the title of the article is favorable effects of the ketogenic diet on physical function, perceived energy, and food cravings in women with ovarian and endometrial cancer. So I, I was I was very interested in these because I I just my grandmom died of ovarian cancer and I just tend to know uh, right. a number of people that have been stricken with either ovarian or endometrial cancer and uh, 
and the results of this study indicate that uh, the ketogenic diet was was very effective. It did not decrease the quality of life, so it enhances the quality of life and improved physical function, increased uh, feelings of energy, and a diminishment of specific food cravings as it relates to like sugar and starch foods. So it helps people sort of adhere to uh, dietary guidelines that really help get their metabolic health under control. And uh, we know that can impact the progression of this type of cancer. So, and it also increased, you know, their physical energy levels too. And there is there's various metrics that they use to measure that. So these are just fresh out of the, uh, you know, on PubMed. And uh, I have probably about a half dozen articles that I got to get through. I just got back from vacation. But in the, in the short, you know, one week vacation, a, a number of very interesting articles. Uh, and, you know, five, 10 years ago, it was like one article every month or two. And now it's like, you know, five articles every week are starting to hit PubMed. And, uh, and, and now there's, you know, these are clinical trials, human clinical trials. So you are seeing... Um, you know, registered government registered clinical trials uh, that are ongoing, and some of them even finishing up, like like these two that I mentioned here. Uh, so my particular focus has been brain cancer because the ketogenic diet historically has been used uh, for epilepsy, right? So with mm, brain right. cancer, you get a situation where the person with a brain tumor is having seizures. So I sort of asked right. the question, well, maybe you can get them off these heavy doses of anti-epileptic drugs and the ketogenic diet may help these patients. And then, you know, I've come to find out years ago that uh, cancer metabolism can also be targeted with the ketogenic diet. So that actually got me interested into, uh, into studying this as my background is neuroscience. And I tend, our lab tends to focus more on the, uh, the brain cancers. Than, than other types hmm. of cancers. So that's sort of like well, where my focus is. So uh, um, just to take, take a little bit of a step back, how are cancer cells or what is it about cancer cells that are different from normal cells in your body that make them um, perhaps susceptible you know, to a ketogenic diet where their growth is either slowed or impaired or hopefully they're just killed off? You know, What are the underlying factors? You said they're glycolytic. What does that mean? And maybe you could talk a yeah. little bit about... Um, the basics of it. Sure. Yeah, that's a really good question because uh, even the cancer biologists and cancer experts really didn't focus much on this question, right? And it's something that was observed. Uh, the difference between normal cells and cancer cells was observed in the 1920s and 1930s by Otto Warburg, actually. And it was sort of documented, but not really focused on uh, for a number of reasons, a little too much to go into for this podcast, but it's, it's highlighted very nicely in the book, Tripping Over the Truth, actually why uh, we focus more on cancer genetics than cancer metabolism. But over the last decade, the uh, community has shifted more towards understanding cancer metabolism with the bulk of the sort of research directed towards really targeting the Warburg effect. So there's kind of like two things going on. So now the general cancer community, not that they always sort of uh, argued against the Warburg effect, but pretty much all cancer biologists now accept that the Warburg effect, which is elevated rates of sugar consumption and elevated glycolysis, is a metabolic phenotype of most cancers. I would say if not 80, then about 90% of cancers. And the ones that are more uh, sort of indolent are the ones that are really not uh, highly glycolytic. Uh, maybe prostate cancer. Maybe there's different types of cancers that are just slower growing. But the more mm -hmm. aggressive the tumor, the more uh, rapid the proliferation rates, the higher the, uh, the glycolytic effect, what we call the Warburg effect. And that's due to a number of different uh, factors that are probably too much to go into now, but there's really a metabolic reprogramming that takes place uh, when it, a normal healthy cell transitions into a cancer cell. And the sort of the metabolic theory 
of cancer, which is intimately also associated with sort of uh, cancer genetics too, because the the metabolism of, of uh, a cell is controls sort of the fidelity of the nuclear genome, if you will. So if the energy status of the cell is decreased, and by energy status, I mean the energy currency in the form of ATP, which is generated by a number of mechanisms, including the mitochondria. If the mitochondria are defective in any way, or there's a, a decrease in ATP, that cell senses that as an energetic crisis. And what happens is that there's this it's called a retrograde response where the nucleus can sense that the cell is not making uh, the amount of energy that it should be making. And it activates uh, a number of genes uh, from from the nucleus level. And, and many of these genes are oncogenes. And many of these genes uh, enhance proliferation. Uh, they enhance uh, sort of glycolytic pathways. They endow the cell with the ability to survive and not be killed off through apoptosis. Uh, Right. So it, and there's a number of things that happen that uh, are very are hallmark characteristics of cancer cells. We call this the hallmarks of cancer, right? Um, so there's unbridled proliferation and glycolytic activity, you know, as a cancer cell becomes more aggressive. There's enhanced metastasis, and that cancer cell sure. uh, also has the ability to invade other tissues and get into the blood right. bloodstream. So you know what's weird? What, from, it it, it, it yeah. sounds like, you know, if, if uh, an individual eats a lot of sugar, you know, a lot of carbs for a long time, it almost sounds like the body is literally saying, okay, well, this is what we're getting. We're going to evolve to capitalize on it better. Unfortunately, the way it seems to evolve is to produce cancers, but you're saying the cancers take, they're taking advantage of this high sugar environment, essentially, and they're, it makes them more aggressive and they're they're thriving in this high sugar environment. They do, but some people can metabolize sugar very effectively. So we we call them they're very carbohydrate tolerant. In the uh, uh, you know as we age, our carbohydrate tolerance decreases with time, and that can create uh, elevated levels of glucose in the blood uh, and elevated levels of of insulin. And typically, along with that, is elevated levels of inflammation. And uh, and this is kind of like the sort of the, the enabling factors that trigger a normal cell from becoming a cancer cell. So there's a lot of, uh, there's kind of this thing called the oncogenic paradox, right? Where there's, there's multiple sort of stimuli or things that can cause a normal cell to transition into uh, a cancer cell from radiation, inflammation, hypoxia, you know, carcinogenic agents. Uh, it's interesting that all these things that I just mentioned there are, uh, are are destructive or damaging to the mitochondria. Even the mitochondrial DNA really lack the robust uh, repair mechanisms that the nucleus has, right? So, and it, as if you throw, you know, inflammation, high blood glucose, uh, elevated reactive oxygen species, if all these things are for example, present in the liver, you know, where maybe environmental factors too, like various chemicals in the environment, the liver tends to see a lot of that. So the liver cells, you know, can be under stress over time. And it's really, uh, it may be impacting the mitochondria, uh, more mitochondrial DNA and mitochondrial function more than the nucleus per se. And for years, it was thought that specific gene or, or damage to the DNA would trigger the activation of genes that cause cancer, oncogenes. But now there's sort of a trend, I would say, to adopt and accept or at least test this theory of the metabolic theory of cancer, where uh, which would posit or hypothesize that healthy mitochondria are really the ultimate tumor suppressor. And healthy mitochondria suppress tumor growth because if the mitochondria are producing robust levels of ATP, energy currency, that can ensure that the the DNA repair mechanisms in the nucleus, uh, you know, maintain the fidelity of the nuclear genome, and that uh, and that you know, if mitochondrial function is high, you probably have you know robust, you know, uh, 
activity of a number of things that sort of preserve cellular and tissue homeostasis, right? And from my perspective, there's a number of things that can achieve that goal. And that could be things like intermittent fasting or periodic ketogenic diet uh, or just paying attention to nutrition. Uh, And I think that's really overlooked. Us as cancer researchers, we don't actually research cancer uh, prevention much. And I think that really that needs to happen or we need to focus. Prevention is the key, right? I mean, the ultimate cure is really prevention. We should start studying because things that that prevent cancer will also be an integral component to the metabolic management of cancer, whether that be most probably not as a standalone approach, but as a neoadjuvant, adjuvant and concurrent uh, therapy, right? So we could use this prior to chemotherapy or radiation. We would limit, you know, that by decreasing insulin sensitivity and glucose availability, that would make the chemotherapeutic agent or radiation uh, that would sensitize the tumor to these modalities. And maybe even uh, there's some, some evidence to suggest that there's enhanced immunity, at least in mouse models of cancer, uh, by the ketogenic diet. So, so the immune system becomes more vigilant at identifying and neutralizing cancer cells that are in the body. So this has been sort of published in, in various animal models. Uh, can I, so there, can I ask you a good... quick question about, um, sure. about chemo and radiation? Um, you know, I've heard, again, on some other podcasts and places, you know, again, like you mentioned, uh, getting into a more insulin sensitive state, you know, so the therapies work better. Is there, are there specific windows of time? Like, let's say you're going to fast before chemo or radiation. Is it best to fast before it, fast through it, you know, fast, uh, 24 hours before it, have it, and then continue fasting for another 12 or 24 hours? Or is it enough to just fast before it, you have it, and then you start eating? You know, or same thing with diet. Do you have any idea what would work best? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. And I think it's a question that's on the uh, radar of uh, a number of oncologists now. There was, you know, work done by Walter Longo, who has a number of clinical trials uh, looking at this. And uh, it does not have to be sort of like a seven-day fast or a five-day fast. It could be as little as you know, 36 hours or, or even maybe 24 hours. So there's definitely protective effects of short-term dietary restriction. It does not necessarily have to be fasting, but uh, sort of calorie restriction decreases uh, many of the drivers uh, for cancer growth and proliferation. It also decreases many of the sort of the, what would say, like the uh, the secondary effects of chemo and radiation, uh, that the inflammation, the tissue, that for brain cancer, it usually requires heavy doses of prednisone or, or dexamethasone to decrease that inflammation. And if a patient fasts or just adopts a, uh, a well-formulated ketogenic diet, it can buffer a, a, lot, of, a lot of that informa- uh, inflammation. But, uh, you know, everybody's a unique metabolic entity. And some people, if they're significantly overweight, if they're significantly sort of suffering from metabolic syndrome, they may be able to, uh, it, it may be wise for them to fast for 48 to 72 hours prior to, uh, you know, receiving chemo or radiation. And they could be, if, they're, if they have a lot of weight to lose. But if a patient has a BMI of like, you know, 19 or 20, you want to be very careful. And, you know, that, that patient needs to work with an oncologist and, and a team, a registered dietitian that's preferentially savvy with ketogenic diet to be able to, uh, or nutri- or fasting ketosis, to be able to guide that patient from a metabolic standpoint and ensure that certain biomarkers or electrolytes, they're, you know, they, they don't go hypoglycemic if they're not used to a state of fasting, you know, that could be so there's a number of things to consider, but I just think that, uh, you know, getting into a fasted or semi-fasted state prior to chemo radiation can be beneficial. And there's quite a, a lot of literature on that. Uh, you'll find, you know, in PubMed, uh, a number of studies where they look at both chemotherapy and radiation therapy and uh, some work on a fasting mimicking diet. 
so Walter Longo has, uh, you know, a dietary plan that's like five days that, uh, you know, requires you to eat uh, certain prepackaged foods for that duration of time and specific biomarkers like, you know, glucose, insulin, uh, beta hydroxybutyrate, you know, the ketone body. They it basically looks like you're fasting. So from a metabolic standpoint, your body is in a, a in fasting ketosis, and that may sensitize the the tumor cells to the uh, cancer killing effects of that modality, and, and also decrease the side effects. And also probably by virtue of elevating ketone levels, protect the healthy cells from uh, from ketogenic or from uh, uh, chemotherapeutic agents. So we know that ketones are neuroprotective. That's sort of what I study. Uh, but ketones can also uh, play a big role in helping to preserve metabolic health in normal healthy cells. Cancer cells that are damaged, uh, you know, they have damaged mitochondria, they re revert back to glycolysis. And by virtue of you know, cancer cells having damaged mitochondria specifically to uh, the electron transport chain proteins and also various uh, components of the mitochondria like cardiolipin and uh, and also the, the cristae, the inner sort of uh, part of the mitochondria where ATP is actually generated. Uh, the, these areas of the mitochondria in cancer cells are damaged. So what it means from a broad perspective is that cancer cells really lack the ability to derive energy from uh, ketone bodies uh, in many ways. And they may also lack certain enzymes like succinyl-CoA transferase and things. That, so I, I won't go too much in the, into the biochemistry, but there's fairly good supporting evidence that cancer cells lack the ability to derive significant amounts of energy from ketone bodies. So by elevating ketones and lowering glucose, you are sort of compromising cancer metabolism in that way. And so putting the body into a state of fasting ketosis by elevating the ketone bodies, lowering glucose, and also lowering insulin and insulin signaling, you are limiting the fuel source of cancer cells and also limiting the growth factor sort of drivers of cancer proliferation. And you're also enhancing the health, the vitality of the healthy cells that can use ketone bodies as an alternative energy source. And they also do things like activate anti-inflammatory pathways or suppress inflammation through something called the NLRP3 inflammasome. And they also function as histone deacetylase inhibitors. And what that means is that they activate various genetic programs that can endow normal healthy cells with resistance against sort of chemical agents. So, so in short, so the therapeutic <laughs> ketosis with chemotherapy, very bad for cancer cells. Therapeutic ketosis uh, with chemotherapy, much less damaging to normal healthy cells. Yeah, you can say it as like Frankenstein, you know, sugar bad, ketones good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But but that's kind of all the stuff that we kind of get into the weeds of all the signaling mechanisms. And, and, you know, it becomes, well, for me, when I did the ketogenic diet and I did, you know, a bunch of blood work and I also got, I'm more into intermittent fasting now. And, you know, you look at the blood markers over time, you look at markers of inflammation, which were really high in me, you know, uh, years ago, but now they've come down significantly, almost non-detectable, my HSCRP. Uh, it really reveals itself to you as a pretty potent sort of, you know, metabolic uh, therapy that has so many different applications. And, uh, and um, you know, it, it's interesting to see some of these top tier research scientists now using it uh, in clinical trials as a means to enhance uh, current forms of therapy. And I know uh, Lewis Cantley, uh, uh, Lou Cantley, did, did a study, uh, his sort of focus is a class of drugs called PI3 kinase inhibitors. And the recent results of his study, and he studied, I think, five different cancer models. And I was just reading over the paper, clearly demonstrated that 
uh, a problem with PI3 kinase inhibitors, you know, it looked like they were going to be miracle drugs. And I think they still do have the potential. Uh, to, and I even think, you know, Luke Cantley should sort of be a candidate for a Nobel Prize. He's done an incredible amount of work on, on cancer metabolism. But the, the, this class of drugs elevates glucose and elevates insulin. When the drug is given with the ketogenic diet, that only under those conditions did it have profound anti-cancer effects. So it didn't really have any effects until that drug was sort of co-administered with uh, uh, the ketogenic diet. And there's different different drugs that they also used, uh, they tried, but nothing was sort of as effective uh, as co-administering this drug with the ketogenic diet. There's the SG. LT2 inhibitors that block, uh, that actually cause, you know, a lowering of blood glucose and metformin was also used in the study. Mm-hmm. But when the three, PI3 kinase inhibitor was given with the ketogenic diet, it really sort of sensitized the whole system, you know, and I'm talking about metabolic mm-hmm. physiology. Uh, by virtue of changing metabolic physiology, you were more able to target the Warburg effect. You know, so it's going beyond just, you know, a particular signaling mechanism in the in the cancer cell itself. It's changing the whole metabolic physiology of the organism. And that changes so many different systems, uh, sort of uh, there's a a synergy that that happens where there's many different sort of mechanisms coming into play when you're altering metabolic physiology like that. And then you come in and then hammer the cells with a very uh, sort of targeted metabolic-based drug like a PI3 kinase inhibitor. Have, have scientists looked at um, you know how cancer cells react <clears throat> to uh, you know the presence of ketones or you know changing in metabolism? So again, there's, there's very low sugar. You know, there's not much energy for them to grab onto. Do the you know just like cancer cells resist dying, they resist apoptosis. Yeah. Do they are they pretty successful in surviving in this tougher environment for them or do they do they fall prey to it and die pretty quickly like have they observed tumor shrinking have they observed uh, you know again cancers being affected yeah it 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 really is dependent upon the the cancer type i would say the more rapidly dividing the cancer cell the more glycolytic it would be and the more insulin receptors that cancer cell likely has uh, there's an imaging technology called uh, an FGG PET scan, for short for fluorodeoxyglucose PET scan, and that will show sort of the glucose metabolism of the cancer cell. And that imaging technology, I always thought would be a good way to vet out patients uh, and to determine specifically what types of cancers would be most amenable to metabolic-based therapy that's using nutritional ketosis or fasting. You know, you, you image, you know, a variety of different types of cancers, and then you can identify by virtue of their FTG PET scans if they're highly glycolytic. And, and some of them, you know, we know it's a, some of the ones that we study, like a glioblastoma, uh, are highly aggressive, highly glycolytic, and they uh, do respond pretty remarkably. There are cancer cells, at least in in vitro model systems, that have the presence of ketolytic enzymes and that can even, they seem to be able to metabolize ketones for energy. Uh, Some of the model systems are kind of questionable. Some have transgenic cell lines or, or, you know, there are things about the model system that are not uh, completely maybe physiological. Uh, but you could say that about pretty much all model systems in one way or another. But, but I think we have to be very careful when applying the ketogenic diet to specific types of cancers and even specific types of individuals. So an individual may have a particular cancer that, you know, is responsive to the ketogenic diet, at least in various model systems, but their physiology may not be sort of amenable to this metabolic-based approach because it is a stress to the body. You need to have a relatively good functioning liver to be able to make ketones. You need to have, uh, it, if the patient is susceptible to cancer cachexia and is already underweight, it may not be a good idea to initiate the ketogenic diet, even though mm. we're studying 
you know, the ketogenic diet as a means to stop cancer cachexia. And there's, there appears to be some application there uh, that the research is very early on that. But if someone's already underweight, it could take a while for them to, you know, adapt to the ketogenic diet to sort of preserve their weight. So weight loss, you know, weight loss is a side effect of the ketogenic diet. It tends to be a good side effect for a lot of people. But I think the the best candidate for uh, for using the ketogenic diet as a metabolic therapy for cancer would be the patient that's, you know, overweight or even slightly overweight and that has a type of cancer that is known to be glycolytic that shows up hot on a PET scan. And the biopsy indicates that that particular cancer has, you know, a high presence of glucose transporters and insulin receptors. So that would be like the ideal candidate. And that actually, I would think, I would say that's about more than half of cancer patients are, you know, kind of overweight or slightly overweight, especially, you know, certain types of cancers like endometrial cancer, maybe ovarian cancer, uh, different types of cancers are associated with sort of obesity uh, or being overweight. And, you know, and, and I think I really do believe that we use a, a FTG PET scan to image the location and aggressiveness of tumors, but we don't necessarily or rarely actually use that information to target the cancer. So I think we should. I think we should use yeah. a PET scan as a gold standard to identify the location and aggressiveness of tumors. And then oncologists can make a decision whether a metabolic-based therapy should be given to that patient either as a standalone approach, perhaps that could be the first sort of first frontline therapy, but also if, if we know that that particular cancer is responsive to chemo and radiation or an immune-based yeah. therapy, by all means, you know, use that approach. But, uh, you know, the FTG PET scan or the presence by virtue of the uh, by virtue of the, the biopsy, if there's high glucose transporters and insulin receptors, then you should rapidly employ a metabolic approach that decreases glucose availability to that tumor, decreases insulin and insulin signaling, and elevates ketone levels, I believe would be the best approach. And, and you know, right. there are groups that are kind of working on this right now. So, yeah, you mentioned you're, um, you know, messing around with intermittent fasting. So what yeah. what kind of protocols are you trying and what effects are you noticing? Yeah, well, intermittent fasting uh, is something I got increasingly interested in just uh, from a practical perspective. I would spend long hours at work, not necessarily have the convenience to stop, prepare food, eat a meal, clean up. <laughs> so I uh, I ended up sort of eating breakfast and not eating all day until dinner. And then waking up earlier and earlier and then skipping breakfast and then not eating all day until dinner. Uh, and, you know, years ago, I would try to eat five or six meals a day, you know, because I was really into to weight training and, you know, you had to eat lots of meals or that was a theory back then. Uh, right. But quite a few people now, even athletes are doing intermittent fasting and it helps adapt your body to using fat as an energy source. So when you first start doing it, you may have... Uh, a hypoglycemic reaction and your body, your brain is, you know, most people's brains are addicted to glucose or we need to have a glucose level of, you know, between 80 and 100 to function sort of normal. Uh, and when you do intermittent fasting, it may dip down to 70, 60 or me for even the 50s. And now I get into the 50s and I'm perfectly normal. I kind of feel in the zone, especially if my ketones are elevated uh, because ketones function as an alternative energy source for the brain. So it allows right. the body to be comfortable and actually maybe even more efficient uh, in the state of hypoglycemia and actually low insulin. Low insulin also means elevated rates of fat metabolism. Beta oxidation of fatty acids in the liver produce these ketone bodies. And then they give the brain an alternative source of energy, I would say a super fuel because there are metabolic advantages to metabolizing ketones. And they also have very interesting signaling effects, not only on the brain, but systemically anti-inflammatory effects. They have epigenetic effects. So we're studying uh, something very interesting called Kabuki syndrome, where ketones actually function as an epigenetic therapy. But that's a little bit off, off of the topic here. But the point yeah, is that right. uh, uh, being in that, that state can be achieved through intermittent fasting. And if you, one way to implement that, uh, which, you know, 
I do a couple times a week. Uh, sometimes I was doing it every day, but I was losing a little bit too much weight because I wasn't able to eat the required amount of calories within the six hour window I was eating. But essentially what I do a couple times a week is I skip breakfast. I have, you know, uh, just some black coffee in the morning that I sip on through the morning and skip breakfast. And I have a late lunch around two or 3 PM. And then I continue to eat, uh, between say 3 PM and 9 PM. Uh, and you probably eat my biggest meal around like 6 or 7 p.m. around dinner time and then maybe snack a little bit in the evening and uh, essentially fasting for 18 hours. And that puts the body into a mild state of ketosis. And even if you're not following a ketogenic diet, what I tend to do is I will intermittent fast and then I will end the fast with a ketogenic meal. (laughs) So I will Mm. continue to eat a ketogenic diet or a low carbohydrate diet during that six hour eating window. So I don't kick myself out of ketosis, but maybe my ketones will go down a little bit uh, if I'm eating a little bit, you know, extra protein or something like that. And then I kind of get the benefits of staying in that metabolic state, but it's not, you know, a heavy state of ketosis like I would be doing as an epilepsy patient following a clinical ketogenic diet. And that's why we call it in our lab, the modified ketogenic diet. It's a little more liberal in protein. Uh, it's also more liberal in vegetables. So, you know, uh, in the form of, you know, usually one or two salads, uh, almost unlimited amounts of green vegetables, but typically, you know, uh, foods like asparagus and broccoli and cauliflower and, you know, kale, spinach, those things are allowed. And they're also a good carrier for fat. So you can cook something like uh, kale <laughs> in, in, in butter or bacon grease or whatever. So, um, and these types of, the nutrients in these types of foods tend to be absorbed and utilized much better when they're kind of eaten in tandem uh, with fat. And fat has a very satiating effect. So it tends to uh, prevent just like in the, the cancer study I was talking about with endometrial and uh, ovarian cancer patients, when they followed the ketogenic diet, they had more energy and they had a greatly reduced cravings for food. So it attenuated, mm. uh, if, not, if not abolished, their uh, cravings for sugar and starchy foods. So that's one of the real yeah, benefits. And practically, I don't think I've ever work, heard... Uh... I don't think I've ever heard anyone say kale as a fat delivery mechanism, but that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Well I, well, I think of salads. So I make my own salad dressing and half of the oil in the salad dressing is medium chain triglyceride oil. You know, I might use hmm. a bullet, uh, brain octane that Dave Asprey sells or another MCT yep. based oil on the market. And I'll take a good extra virgin olive oil and mix it with MCT oil and like a one to one ratio. And then I have, you know, various herbs that I throw in there and shake it up. And that's my salad dressing. And I can put uh, quite a bit of oil on a mixed green salad and and get 15 to 20 to even 30 or 40 grams of quality ketogenic fats, you know, with the vegetables. And that, you know, the fat delays gastric absorption. So it kind of slows down the uh, digestive system in a way that's good. It sort of, uh, it stimulates various things that aid in digestion, like cholecystokinin and and various, uh, it activates the brain. There's various feedback mechanisms where it essentially keeps the brain happy. So the brain is that it's getting fat, you know, it slows digestion, it increases, uh, you know, delays gastric absorption a little bit. So it tends to enhance the digestive processes uh, the fat sort of keeps the brain happy as you're making ketones, they function as an alternative energy and they have unique sort of, uh, effects on the brain, really changing the neuropharmacology of the brain in a way that decreases, uh, glutamate and elevates GABA, or there's more conversion of an excitatory amino transmitter into sort of a brain stabilizing uh, neurotransmitter no, known as GABA. Hmm. And I, I study that from the perspective of sort of anti-seizure effects and, and there are adenosine receptors and there, there's various neuropharmacological pathways in the brain that are changing in response to nutrition. And that's really important to Maybe. focus on a, a lot of neuroscientists now. And 
ones that got me interested in the field, like uh, Dr. Zhang Ro, he's a uh, He's a director in Calgary of pediatric epilepsy. He kind of, you know, he is uh, at the edge of studying how the brain changes in response to the ketogenic diet, how it really fundamentally changes the neuropharmacology of the brain. And now we're studying things like anxiety uh, or, or various various disorders that are similar to autism, like Angelman syndrome, uh, Kabuki syndrome. Uh, a number of different things we're, we're studying now um, that uh, are responding to the ketogenic diet that I never thought, you know, I, I would be studying. And it's doing it just by virtue of uh, altering the metabolism of the brain, but also the neuropharmacology of the brain. Yeah, one thing I haven't heard you mention is the uh, the microbiome, because, you know, yeah. I've, I've spoken to many people and they, I, I mean, there's only so much you can know, but it seems like that's a really important piece to all of this. I wonder how, you know, the ketogenic diet affects the microbiome. And it's said that the microbiome, you know, uh, they produce serotonin, 80% of your serotonin is produced in your gut and it affects your brain and kind of interfaces with your main brain. So I wonder if, uh, is that a piece of the puzzle that you're looking at or is it just too much to even consider to add that in? No, it's definitely, you know, something we actually do research. We have a uh, a human, you know, research trial, an IRB approved, the Institutional Review Board is kind of like an ethics committee review board right. uh, study approved by NASA to study this uh, in their space analog mission. So they do these analog missions that are underwater and it basically prepares the crew and it kind of vets out different technologies and studies different scientific questions to understand what we need to do to get to Mars and back. And, and one of the projects that we have is actually, uh, we have five projects, but one of them is studying the uh, microbiome and how that microbiome changes when you put people together in a capsule, do you get uh, sort of, you know, does everybody's microbiome start to resemble one another, right? And how does that microbiome change in response to the food we eat? And from my perspective, I'm interested in studying the ketogenic diet or a ketone supplement in that in that context. Uh, from a global perspective, we know that the health of the microbiome is really an important factor. There's different ways to measure that. Not everybody agrees on what the optimal microbiome is because there probably is not an optimal microbiome for everyone. So based upon the food you eat, based upon your geographical location, based upon various factors, the, the optimal microbiome may be different for different people. But we do know that certain species are pathological. We do know a big problem could be the overgrowth of the microbiome. And things like intermittent fasting, things like the ketogenic diet can help purge the intestinal, intestinal uh, microbiome or the overgrowth, we should say, of the microbiome. And I think that could be really helpful for a lot of people who have like constant bloating issues, uh, mm. issues that are kind of similar to irritable bowel syndrome that just seem to be persistent. Uh, you know, and I get so many emails that people email me, and so I know there's something to study here: uh, carbohydrate restriction, and uh, and and even intermittent fasting may be a way to get the microbiome back into balance. And I do think that many people just have an overgrowth of certain species uh, in their microbiome that's creating essentially a dysbiosis, and that dysbiosis can be mitigated through. Uh, changing the macronutrient profile of the diet, but uh, even intermittent fasting can help uh, restore the sort of the normal microbiome. And if the microbiome is, is sort of healthy, the intestinal mucosa maintains a more healthy state. And there's various things that keep the sort of the endothelial cells together. They're called tight junctions. And if those tight junctions become leaky by a gut dysbiosis, that allows a gap between the cells of the intestine. And that lets in, you know, peptides and other molecules that if they enter the bloodstream, the body sees these molecules and they're not supposed to be there and launches uh, an inflammatory cascade or an immune reaction. 
And if your immune system is busy dealing with these things that enter the bloodstream from the gut that are not supposed to be there, that sort of compromises your immune system, you know, to, you know, to keep things like viruses, to keep things like, uh, you know, environmental toxins uh, under control. So it really compromises your immune system if you have a leaky gut that's a consequence, a consequence of gut dysbiosis. So we're looking at well, just things like, like um, yeah. a quick question. Just just like you mentioned that you know cancer cells, especially more aggressive ones, you know I guess for lack of a more scientific word, you know love sugar and they thrive on it. I'm sure in the gut, the different species of bacteria are the same. Some love sugar, some don't. So if you yeah, you know some yeah. love carbs. So if you change your diet, I'm sure you're changing the populations and the ability of one population to proliferate or die. I'm sure it has. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So you are purging a lot of, you know, when you go on a low carb diet, you go from a high carb to low carb diet, you're purging a lot of the, uh, the, the, uh, microbiome species that thrive, uh, your microbiome basically eats the diet that you eat, right? So if you change your diet, you're going to be changing your microbiome. Uh, and there, there's some indication that, you know, the ketogenic diet may decrease the diversity of the microbiome, may alter it in different ways. Uh, so we don't really know, you know, if diversity, decreasing diversity may actually be a, a good thing. I mean, it really, it, it's about a balance. I think we should think about the microbiome sort of as a balance. And uh, from my perspective, I've seen a lot of people's uh, HSCRP levels, their kind of global inflammatory marker, drop considerably on a ketogenic diet. And my belief is that the gut microbiome, or maybe take a step back, my belief is that HSCRP, that's an inflammatory marker, is a really good indication of the health of the uh, gut mucosa and, and your microbiome. Uh, I say this because if you take a person that has very low HSCRP, very low levels of inflammation, and they have presumably okay. a good a good microbiome and a good, you know, a nice nicely functioning intestinal system. And you disrupt that uh, with gastroenteritis, or, for example, or something. You see that person's HSCRP levels go through the roof. So just by disrupting, uh, by introducing a bacterial agent or maybe uh, a viral stomach flu, you see inflammation go off the chart or, or something that disrupts the gut microbiome, inflammation goes up. And that's probably because you're creating sort of what they call a leaky gut syndrome and you're opening up those tight junctions in the gut and you're allowing things into the bloodstream that otherwise should not be there and you're launching an immune attack on that. And that really stresses the immune system and makes you more vulnerable to other things and maybe even cancer. If your immune system is chronically sort of working to neutralize antigens that are entering the blood supply from the gut, uh, it's making you more susceptible to cancer just by virtue of if normal cells are, you know, transforming into cancer cells, the immune system is less vigilant in identifying and neutralizing those cells as they develop. And uh, I, I think you could say that if, if people go through a very stressful period of their life, whether it be psychological, physical, or something that, you know, attacks their immune system, I think that's, that's setting them up potentially for for different types of cancers. If you have a virus, if your body's uh, HIV, for example, so if you have HIV or cytomegalovirus or Epstein-Barr, there are various viruses that make you more susceptible to getting cancer, probably because your immune system is busy trying to fight that virus. Um, hmm. So I think, I think that, that's sort of important. And I kind of bring it back to the microbiome because if you have this persistent dysbiosis that's causing a disruption of the sort of intestinal intestinal mucosa and, and and causing this leaky gut syndrome your immune system is kind of working overtime and um and you could be compromised in that way and and I had an experience personally with this uh, I was traveling in Asia and I tend to do a lot of blood work to stay up on top of things to understand how different things, you know, affect my body. And uh, I got 
a little bit of food poisoning, you know, uh, bacterial, uh, you know, food poisoning. And, uh, and I, I used that as an opportunity <laughs> to actually measure because I had just measured my all my inflammatory markers. And, uh, and I came down with bacterial, you know, uh, uh, a little bug from the food, I'm pretty sure I know what caused it. Uh, but when I got into the state where I had, you know, the symptoms of, of food poisoning, it was two or three days into it, I took I took some more blood work and I used it as an opportunity to see how that specific disruption of my intestine uh, impacted specific biomarkers. And one of the things that skyrocketed, I never saw it so high, was uh, the HSCRP level was really high, which means that, you know, my body was really... Uh, at a very high state of inflammation from uh, sort of the, the compromise of, of my gut uh, mucosa. So that's how I sort of kind of quantify that. And, uh, and I've seen it yeah. in other people too. Yeah. So I, I really think that your immune system and your brain, so the inf if your gut is inflamed, your brain is going mm -hmm. to be inflamed, right? So you launch a wide variety of cytokines and, uh, and it may even compromise the blood-brain barrier if you are in a uh, sort of the chronic state of, of inflammation. There are certain cytokines that can sort of make the blood-brain barrier a little bit more permeable and more vulnerable to certain things. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, um, <laughs> we've covered a lot of topics. I guess just uh, maybe one or two questions left on uh, intermittent fasting. I'm just curious about it. Um, sure. Some people I've seen advocate, you know, a minimum of 16 hours or 24 hours or three days or five days. Um, when do you think the benefits start to occur? You know, how many hours of intermittent fasting would you say is necessary to get anywhere with it to have any beneficial effect? Yeah, well, I, you know, as a scientist, I'd say kind of fall back on specific biomarkers. So if you could measure your blood beta hydroxybutyrate levels with something like an Abbott precision extra meter that you can get on Amazon or pretty much any, any drug store uh, and measure when your beta hydroxybutyrate gets above 0.5, you are clinically entering a state of ketosis. In this case, it would be fasting ketosis. And we know that uh, levels as low as 0 0.4, 0 0.5 have important signaling effects like anti-inflammatory effects and sort of effects on on the your your neuropharmacology or your brain too. So I think if you periodically get into that fasting state of ketosis, uh, mm -hmm. that that should be your window. So for some people, that may be for an athlete who's maybe running a mild calorie deficit. Uh, that could be just a short overnight sleep, you know, eight to 10 hours, they could already be entering. But for someone with metabolic syndrome, it may take them 18 to 20 hours to really to even get into the 0.5 range. And it may actually take them uh, during their eating window, they may want to restrict sugars and starches and just eat low carbohydrate during their eating window. And that would help them achieve that state, but I would let that biomarker guide them. If they're never getting up to 0.5 beta hydroxybutyrate during what they're calling intermittent fasting, I would say they're not yet getting the benefits of that. And I, I kind of take it one farther, one step further, and look at what we call the glucose ketone index, which is the level of glucose over the level of ketones in millimolar. Hmm. For example, normal glucose levels are, you know, about four or five millimolar. And uh, yeah. if you're on a ketogenic diet and may, maybe you're doing intermittent fasting, <clears throat> my glucose levels will drop to three millimolar and my ketone levels towards the end of the day will be elevated to about three millimolar because I stay on the ketogenic diet too. And hmm. so I, I further boost it, you know, with intermittent fasting. So that would be a glucose ketone index of one. If my glucose wow. went to four millimolar and my ketones came up to just just the two millimolar, that would have that would give me a glucose ketone index of two. And from our perspective, if you look at the scientific data, if you're getting into a glucose ketone index between 
one and four, you are getting a lot of benefits of the ketogenic diet. So that could be, you know, your glucose, an, an easier way to achieve that would be a glucose level of four millimolar, which is right around like 80 milligrams per deciliter or something like that, uh, and right. get your ketone levels up to one millimolar. We know that clinically, you know, from a fundamental scientific perspective, you that's a state that you would never get into, <laughs> that a normal person would never get into, right? And, and that's a state that could be achieved simply by a mild intermittent fasting protocol, like in 18 hours of fasting, six hours of eating. If you were to eat low carb during that six hours of eating, uh, most people, especially if they exercise and maybe do a little bit of mild calorie restriction, can get into that one to four, uh, that glucose ketone index of one to four. And we right. know that that offers a lot of a lot of advantages. So you don't have to be in it all the time, but if you were to do that and get into that state, you know, one or two days per week, that in and of itself would uh, would give a pretty significant health benefit from my perspective. Yeah, that's not so bad. I was going to ask you, how do you have any fingers left? Just stick yourself like ten <laughs> times a day to get your blood. <laughs> you know, maybe yeah, you have a main line or a port and put in. I don't know. Uh, yeah, actually, we do that with the rats, but uh, we put it, we put a port in. But uh, but I use all my fingers, right? And I don't actually mm. use the little device because it doesn't. My fingers are kind of callousy, so I literally just take a syringe needle and just like jab it on the side oh, and man. get some blood. But uh, yeah, my wife thinks I'm kind of crazy, but uh, but yeah, that's you know that's what we do in our lab and. A lot of a lot of my students and stuff. We're always checking things. Like we have, I have batches of various. I have a double chocolate chip uh, cookies that I'm testing today. So uh, I'll be jabbing my fingers later after eating these uh, double chocolate chip cookies. So you know, it's it's well, at least a reward. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it, it's very interesting too because you know, ten years ago you didn't have the opportunity to have, you know, food companies are coming out with low carb or even ketogenic pizzas or ketogenic chocolate chip cookies or ketogenic muffins. So this mm. makes the ketogenic diet more accessible uh, to the to the people that I'm in contact with, which is the epilepsy community, various scientific researchers who want to conduct clinical trials with a ketogenic diet. And they look and they think it's very restrictive, but with new food technologies uh, coming and a lot of entrepreneurs are really scrambling to this market to develop uh, various types of, of food products that would allow implementation of nutritional ketosis to be relatively easy, uh, where these comfort foods are now ketogenic. So it doesn't. Uh, mm. So in the next you know, year or two, there almost would be no restrictions. There's ketogenic flour. So you can cook pancakes, you can cook breads, you can cook anything you want wow. uh, and, and make a ketogenic diet. So there's really and that has been by far the biggest problem with the ketogenic diet, even from a doctor's perspective, they will actually agree with you and say the science is there, that this is highly effective, but it's just not feasible for my patients to implement it. And now with the new technologies emerging on the market, even exogenous ketones, it's actually making it uh, much easier for uh, for patients to implement these approaches. Hmm. Well, that's great, Dominic. I mean, you're, you're amazing knowledge in all areas. And I really appreciate you coming on and spending so much time. And it's a, uh, you know, a lot of great stuff to think about if, if, you know, for this conversation, what are one or two resources that you think people should look at so they can go more in depth and, you know, find a, a customized information for them or solution for them? Yeah, sure. Well, I've compiled a lot of information on my website, which is keto nutrition dot all one word dot org and on that website you'll have you know on the resources section there's apps there's tools you know how to books there's keto foods there's consultants keto doctors you know I have all my podcasts like with Joe Rogan and Tim Ferriss and Rhonda Patrick and uh, Dr. Peter right. Atia that's the last one I loaded up on so I cover a lot of this ground like on, on those podcasts too uh, and we also have a blog so, and my students help me with a blog because they're, 
they're really awesome and they're so passionate about what they do. And the blog really touches upon a lot of uh, the topics like, can you do the ketogenic diet if you're a vegetarian or even vegan? Uh, yeah. Or what, what kind of cookies can I eat? So ketonutrition.org and the Charlie Foundation, I would direct, you know, especially parents that have kids that may have epilepsy or if you're interested in the clinical applications or implementation of the ketogenic diet, the Charlie Foundation uh, website is, is very good. So just Google the Charlie Foundation website and they're a foundation that I've, I've you know, hooked up with Jim Abrams, the Hollywood producer, uh, his story. Uh, of his son, Charlie, was very inspirational to me, and I got into this. And Meryl Streep was his friend, and Meryl Streep did a movie about the ketogenic diet uh, called First Do No Harm, and that movie really touched me like over a decade ago, and that really like mm. steered me in this direction. So the Charlie Foundation, I would, you know, if you're interested in the history and you know legitimacy, I guess, if you will, the ketogenic diet, First Do No Harm is a great movie. Uh, most people don't okay. know that Meryl Streep did a movie about the ketogenic diet. So that's kind of interesting to a lot of people. Yeah, so, cool. yeah there's cool. two top resources. Well, Dom, thanks, thanks for coming again. I mean, you spent a lot of time and gave a ton of knowledge. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, I love being on and thanks for giving me this platform and thanks for doing what you do because that helps guys like us get uh, the information out there. And uh, thanks for bringing out all this great information that you have on your podcast. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.